This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. Neil Oliver is tonight's outsider. And hot on the heels of failed London Mayor Sadiq Khan's jolly across America to learn about cannabis and other of the UK's biggest political egos, Nicola Sturgeon has gone stateside this week. And as part of the First Minister's grandstanding tour promoting her independence ploy, Sturgeon appeared earlier tonight at the prestigious Washington think tank, the Brookings Institute, where she gave a woke speech about Scotland's role in tackling the global climate crisis. There is an overwhelming scientific consensus that this will be catastrophic. In the words of the UN Secretary General, a two degree rise will create a hellscape on Earth. Equally clear is the consensus that to avoid this hellscape and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, global emissions must be halved by the end of this decade. But unfortunately for scheming Sturgeon, key members of her audience have zero interest in the SNP's dodgy pursuit of a second referendum, with one expert accusing her of harming the NATO alliance with her visits. This is Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institute, who told The Herald on Sunday, it just feels a weird moment to push this with much bigger issues dominating the news and the schedules of policymakers. If Scots push this now, it feels like they are somehow being political opportunists in a slightly unfriendly way to the broader NATO good. To me, it feels wrong in the timing. NATO does not have the bandwidth for this issue, and now it might appear to weaken the alliance at a time when we need to project strength and resolve. So, Neil Oliver, this looks like a terrible start for Sturgeon's big US jaunt. Uh, How do you reckon her trip's going to go down where you are in Scotland? I think uh, she's increasingly irrelevant, I would say, for the majority of Scottish people. Uh, Her her incessant calls for an an independence referendum, a, a second referendum, increasingly fall on on deaf ears uh, you know in the in the recent uh, local elections she, she the SNP got something uh, well the, the turnout in Scotland was less than 40% uh, of that the SNP got less than 40% you know so that something like 16 I don't know 18% maybe of the Scottish electorate voted for her and of that, of that small percentage, only some of those that vote SNP actually want independence. Uh, you know, so her her calls for that are are, are increasingly, uh, you know, she's pleading to an increasingly small uh, number of people. But but I would say even more widely than that, it's indicative of. Um, it's that old wisdom about people who cannot fix their own problems, who cannot deal with their own shortcomings. They seek to distract from that uh, by going out and, uh, you know, and promising to fix the wider world. You know, people that can't make their own bed or, or wash their own dishes, they leave all that mess behind them and shut the door on it, pretend it's not there and go out and pontificate to others about what, you know, you know what should be done to fix the world. She's a, she's a classic case of that. The SNP under Nicola Sturgeon, they can't do anything. You know, these are people that that are ineffectual, that are incompetent. Under Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland has gone from, you know, from a position where we were were once widely regarded 
you know, as a nation, as a as a population, as a culture with so much to offer, and we have been so diminished under the years of of SNP dominance. It's everything you want to think of: infrastructure, the state of the NHS, the state of hospitals that she's promised to build and hasn't been able to deliver. You know, the the two hundred and fifty million pound ferries contract that's that's look. You know, she was advised at the time that it was. You know, that there were legal problems with it. She went ahead. Those two ferries are going to be scrapped almost certainly. They'll never sail. Uh, drugs deaths, the, you know, the, the fact that people in the east end of Glasgow have the same life expectancy as people in sub-Saharan Africa, you, you, education that used to be world class and now we're so bad that it's been it's it's been deemed better just to take Scottish schools off of national and international league tables because it's too embarrassing to be compared there, and yet despite all of those problems at home, the problems that she is paid to deal with, she's off swanning about in America trying to. To distract from the fact that she cannot do anything. Her SNP are a disastrous problem for Scotland. Scotland is failing under the SNP, and there she is, out and you know, across on the other side of the Atlantic, distracting from that by pontificating. It's also it's it's fascinating to remember that she's in a country where the union, the union of the United States, is indissoluble. You know, if the governor of, of Arizona or, 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 or California was to come to London and talk about the, you know, and, and talk about seeking independence, then the federal government in the United States w- would pay attention to what that governor was saying, you know, because of the illegality of seeking to remove one state from the union. It's illegal in the United States. And yet, you know, here we are and we have a, you know, we have a first minister of Scotland who's out there doing her damnedest uh, to, you know, to raise the spectre of yet another independence yeah. referendum. And, and it doesn't you know, look like she's going to have much sympathy there, Neil. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, she's a, she is a, she is a, a an effective politician. Well, she's a globalist, uh, isn't she? We know and that. She's a globalist. She's one she of is, those. She is, she is successful at, at, at selling herself, uh, you know, at, at pushing herself as a, you know, as a, you know, as a, a as a figure. You know, she, that is that is what that is what she is skilled at. But the, the point is, she is not skilled at anything else. When it comes to properly looking after a country, you know, Scotland has its needs. You know, the Scottish people are, are a population that have, we have have problems here at home. There are things that need addressed. And the fact that the that Nicola Sturgeon's SNP are completely incapable of dealing with those problems. She knows that she is incapable. She is incompetent. Her party are incapable and incompetent. And all she does is try to distract attention from that. She exists, her party exists to pursue a single a single objective, which is independence. She can't deliver it. It's never going to happen. But she's trapped on the hamster wheel. She has to keep on promising it. She has to keep on throwing red meat to her base. And so she's going to be out there in the United States pontificating about an independence that only a fraction of the Scottish population want. And, and and for as long as she is there, for as long as the SNP dominates in Scotland, it is always to the you know the disastrous suffering of the better part of the population of Scotland. Searing analysis as ever from our Neil Oliver. Neil, thank you. Thanks. Dan. But it's time now for Uncancelled. 
And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. The dark underbelly of trans activism was exposed yesterday as a women's rights rally was aggressively hijacked by a gang of masked extremists. A lone woman was assaulted at the Standing for Women event as counter-protesters from the Manchester Trans Rise Up movement surrounded the city's statue of suffragette hero Emmeline Pankhurst in St Peter's Square. But the brave feminist waving a purple, white and green suffragette flag defiantly stood her ground. Look. J.K. Rowling tweeted about that. I never expected the right side of history to include so many people in masks, intimidating and assaulting women. Did you? But she never dropped her flag. Emmeline would be proud. Well, top political commentator, founder of the Free Speech Union, Toby Young, joins me now. Toby, I mean, nasty scenes like these are actually damaging the trans cause, aren't they? Yes, I think they are. Um, I have no idea why this activist group in Manchester, I think Manchester Trans Rise Up, decided to stage this protest. A group of feminists decided to hold a meeting in a public square in Manchester in front of a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the leaders of the suffragettes. Um, and for some reason, um, this group of woke activists decided to stage this protest and stand in front of the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst to try and prevent these feminists standing in front of it and making speeches. I mean, completely unnecessary, provocative, unpleasant thing to do. Um, and as we saw uh, in that particular clip, uh, one woman was, um, you know, more or less assaulted by one of these protesters. And the irony, Dan, is that there was a police officer from uh, Manchester Police uh, standing by and looking on, did absolutely nothing to intervene to protect that woman clutching that flag. And afterwards, when uh, someone else had stepped in to protect her, the police then interviewed her and threatened to arrest her for a breach of the peace. Toby, that's one irony. I completely agree. But isn't the other major irony here the fact that actually it's big, burly blokes who are taking on women physically. It's incredible, Dan. I mean, you know, um, part of the kind of uh, communications strategy of trans activists is to portray trans people as these fragile victims um, threatened by these burly feminists. And yet here they were at this demonstration dressed up like ninjas, you know, um, yes. uh, in order to try and be as intimidating as possible. I mean, on the one hand, it's extremely sinister. It's not going to win anyone over to their cause. It's going to persuade absolutely no one of the rightness of their cause. It's just going to generate sympathy for these gender critical feminists. But, but at the same time, it was so extreme. The attempt to intimidate and frighten so over the top, it actually spills over into comedy. 
And they look absolutely ridiculous. You know, and, and if anything is going to damage the woke cause, Dan, it's the woke cause becoming just hilariously uncool. And that's what J.K. Rowling said about these protesters. It was a hilarious own goal. You know, the one thing the woke have going for them is they're supposed to be kind of somehow cool on the right side of history. These sort of social justice warriors. And here they are dressing up like action figures that you'd expect to see kids wearing on, you know, um, uh, come as your favorite book day at school i mean it was just ridiculous okay no good you've made me feel better about it now toby let's just laugh at these absolute idiots but when it comes to big burly blokes threatening some sort of physical violence against biological women that's that's when i draw the line but great analysis as ever from toby young thank you toby we'll speak soon Breaking tonight, Boris Johnson has told everyone in Northern Ireland to, quote, roll up their sleeves and get stuck in to help end the paralysis at Stormont after the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, refused to nominate new ministers for the executive. The Prime Minister visited Belfast today for crunch talks with all five political leaders amid a standoff over post-Brexit border checks, which has left Northern Ireland without leadership since the Assembly election 10 days ago. He singled out the DUP for playing hardball over its demands to change the Northern Ireland protocol. You need leadership and you need government. So you bet, I said to, uh, to the DUP uh, in particular... Um, we want to see you back in the executive. We want to see you nominating. We want to see a speaker in the assembly. Um, of course. Now, the issue they have is that they object to the operation of the, of the protocol. Uh, we don't want to scrap it, uh, but we think it can be fixed. And actually, five of the five parties I talked to today also think it needs reform. Northern Ireland, just the latest issue for the Prime Minister after a worrying set of local election results and the growing cost of living crisis. So does the Conservative Party need a total restart to set a new agenda? Well, former Brexit Minister David Davis, a Tory grandee, says yes, and he joins me now to reveal his plan. So, look, let's kick off with the Northern Ireland Protocol, because, of course, it's the story of the day. You quit as Brexit Minister under... Theresa May's Pretty much government over, this. over exactly <laughs> this. So do you think Boris has been too conservative here? Does he just need to get rid of this damn thing? Well, I think, look, the, the risk of just throwing it out, exercising Article 16, changing, uh, changing it unilaterally, is that we end up with a trade war with the European Union. Nobody wants that. They don't want it because they they've got zero growth at the moment. We don't want it. So the trick is to find a, a diplomatic way through it that works for everybody. Now, one of the big things uh, that, uh, that the unionists are reasonably concerned about is the barrier effectively in the Irish Sea between mm. us, between the rest yep. of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. There are ideas for having a sort of green channel so that most of the trade, which is just between ourselves and Northern Ireland, has no implication for Europe, and that can be done with no regulation at all, then a red channel for those things that might risk going south. That, that sort of idea. Now, let me just make one point, however. The, uh, the Good Friday Agreement was there, the way it was designed, was not to give ultimate power to the majority. It was that every minority had to be respected. Mm -hmm. And when it was created, 
the Irish government and other governments said, yeah, that's a very good way of approaching it. It's no different now that the minority is a democratic unionist party. You still got to respect the minority. So we need to find a conclusion which fits for everybody. Uh, and Boris is starting the right way, I think. And if I were him, once he's, once he's done his tour of Northern Ireland, I would go to every capital in Europe, you know, uh, and actually say to them, look, this may have been designed to uh, preserve the Good Friday Agreement. Actually, it's undermining it. Actually, it's destabilising mm. it. Actually, it's doing harm to, to Northern Ireland. None of you want to do that. Let's find a proper way through. That's the way to do it. Good idea. OK, let's move on mm-hmm. from Northern Ireland because, of course, there is a host of problems uh, facing the Prime Minister. You have a plan, though, <laughs> David Davis. You have a plan that you think uh, can restart the party and see Boris re-elected if he were to stick with it. So run me through what you're it's, proposing. It's, frankly, it's pretty simple. I mean, it, it starts with that most conservative thing of having low taxes. Mm. It is, after all, what we promised in the yep. election, right? And what's happened is we've been driven off our course, course by COVID uh, and, and a variety of things, but principally COVID, uh, and all the economic impacts and trade impacts and so on. Now, first thing, therefore is to start cutting, is to reverse, not cut taxes, is to reverse tax increases we put through. We shouldn't have put NICs through. We shouldn't have put the increase in national insurance through. We shouldn't be putting through an increase in corporation tax. Why not? Because we're actually collecting more taxes than we ever have mm. before, partly because we're growing faster than anybody forecast, but or we were until last month, uh, and, and, and partly because of what they call fiscal drag, which means basically... As inflation comes along, you don't get your tax allowance increased. You still pay. So as your wages go up, you pay more and more taxes. So those things have meant we've got vast amounts of money. We've got about 90 billion more. Remember, all this was about raising 12 billion. We've got 90 billion more than we expected. So put that right first. Why? What? Number one, cost of living crisis solves that. It doesn't solve it outright, but it does a great deal to solve it. Uh, Number two, and actually more fundamental almost, is it... If we do, if we carry on as we are, we're going to stop our growth rate. It's and we've been we've been saying it. People like me, people like John Redwood, have been saying this for a year now. And bingo! Last month, the figures proved it. So that's the first yeah. thing. Stop so, pretending to be a low tax party and actually, actually be, be a low tax yeah, party. Absolutely. What, what about housing, though? Well, that's another then, huge then you, issue. Then you come down to basically three other big issues. Yeah. In my mind. I'm, I, what I'm looking at really are the big issues that people worry about. Yeah. Now, when I was in my 20s, 65%, nearly two-thirds of, of my generation bought their own home. Now it's a quarter. It's shocking. You know? and, and the rents you pay, if you don't, enormous rents people have to pay. So they've got no chance of saving up the money to buy their own home. Now, why is that? Well, because population's increased by about 7 million, and so we're about a million short in t- number of houses, and about 100,000 houses a year short too. Now, what happens? If you try and do that, People say, I don't want you building next to my house. I don't want you building next to my village. I don't want you taking up my, my, my green space. Well, why don't we start building garden villages and garden towns? If you, if you took a helicopter across the United Kingdom, as I have to do too often, if you take a helicopter, it's like flying over a golf course. Most of it's not urban, you know. You can actually uh, do that. And if you did that and you allocated, let's say, a 1,000 acres here, and a, you make a lot of money on the increase in value. Mm. Massive. Like that. Yeah? And you can, you know, some of it will go to the landowner, of course. 
but a chunk of it should go to paying for the yep. community centre. And, and we'll get those houses we so desperately need. All those services. Without upsetting the NIMBYs. Oh, uh, without upsetting the NIMBYs. <laughs> uh, you know, you create new houses, they will be bigger. At the moment, yep. you know, our houses built today are half the size they were built in the 20s. Oh, I know. And they're the smallest in Europe. Yeah. So you can have bigger, cheaper, better houses with good services. What's not to like about that? So, so that's housing. Then you've got education. When, again, when I was at school... Uh, this country had the highest social mobility pretty much in the world. Now, we're about the lowest, along with the Americans. Uh, and you know, what's the big thing there? It's education. And I think we need to completely start re-engineer the classrooms. You know, because today, if you look at children at the age of 11, half of the children from free school meal homes, which is one measure of of poor homes, half of them are failed by the time they're 11. They haven't got good enough English or good enough maths to do all the other subjects. We can't let that go on. So it's a question of really. And we've got lots of technology now, AI technology, you know, screens for kids and so on, give them the best possible lectures, diagnostic tests. There's loads of things can be done there. So that's the second thing, you know. And the third thing, frankly, and this, will, this is the one that will cause a negative reaction, I think, in some quarters, is I think we should be addressing the complete reform of the health service, you know. I mean, it's always been, Tories have been afraid of this subject mm. because people say, oh, you're trying to privatise it. No, we're not. Mm. I want free at the point of delivery. But, you know, Germany has free at the point of delivery. France has free, and Austria and Sweden. But they have better cancer care results than health. Yes. They have lower, they have, they have lesser mm. queues than we do. You know, they, they have better coronary care. Uh, and so all of these things... Uh, we should be aiming to get for our people. And I think there is now a sort of gap, as it were, in the market, in the political market. I think because people can't get to see their GPs, because they're queuing up to, to get cancer care, because their tests have been late and so they may die before they get treated, I had a couple of those cases in my own constituency, there is an appetite to think about this again. We now an spend honest conversation an about the honest NHS. conversation. We yep. already spend more than the OECD average on our healthcare now. Not quite as yep. much as France and Germany, but we're catching up. And we it's get not worse just results. Money. That we is get the worse issue. results for more well, look, money. I think that's a good plan. Yep. Hope Boris Johnson was listening. Will he do it? Oh, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> David Davis, former Brexit minister. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Listener.